Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Primate Cast. We're your hosts, Andrew McIntosh. And Chris Martin. And today we're both really excited to be able to present the first of a series of five upcoming podcasts in which we present interviews that we conducted recently at a conference in Kyoto. That's right. We just got back from the annual research conference of the International Institute of Advanced Studies. This year it was on the evolutionary origins of the human mind. It was a really interesting conference, uh, partly because of how broad it was. Uh, We had uh, a lot of speakers coming to discuss things from chimpanzee culture right through cognitive developmental robotics. And that was really incredible to see some of these robot talks. It was great. And we had the opportunity to visit one of these researchers, Dr. Hiroshi Ishiguro, in his lab um, just outside of Kyoto, where he has worked on a number of projects, one of which led to the development of the Geminoid. That's an android that looks very similar to him, almost identical to him. Eerily similar to him, indeed. It even uses his own hair. <laughs> Which he grew out just for that purpose. Yeah. But, so for our listeners, you have to check us out on the Primate Cast at Facebook, and you'll be able to see those pictures of us That's with right. the Geminoid. We'll post those there. But it was, it was really interesting that uh, some, uh, many of these researchers in cognitive robotics are also tackling the issue of the evolution of the, of the human mind in both in terms of better understanding us, mm-hmm. but also better understanding how we might advance the field of robotics. Right. And a lot of that involves interaction studies between humans, between humans and robots. So there's a lot of overlap with human psychology and maybe evolution as well. Speaking of interactions, the Geminoid wasn't the only robot we were able to have fun with. You also had a nice segment there with a robot called the Telenoid. That's right. It's this crazy robot that you hold in your hands and it talks to you, someone talks to you over the telephone through the robot. And it's really kind of a bizarre experience. And so we were able to get some video of that as well. And we're going to put that on the Primate Cast Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And that also has Professor DeWall talking to the Telenoid. Right. Who we're going to have in a minute here. So please check that out. Check that out. So getting back to the conference. Now, another announcement is that you happen to be one of the two poster prize winners. So congratulations. Thank you. So what was that like? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I was presenting on some recent recent studies that I did on uh, chimpanzees sharing a touch panel and some new research in that area. So I was happy that people liked it. Yeah, I mean, it was a great opportunity for you. I mean, you have a lot of very notable scientists here in your relevant to your field mm-hmm. who were able to see your work, which got showcased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of chimpanzee researchers were there. And so in addition to that, we were able to get some interviews done. So we were able to sit down with five researchers mm-hmm. and I'll just list them. Sure. So we have Dr. Franz de Waal, mm-hmm. Dr. Joseph Call, mm-hmm. and Dr. William McGrew, and Dr. Dora Biro, and finally Dr. Cricket Sands. And we'll be presenting these interviews in the next five uh, podcasts, yep. starting with Dr. Franz de Waal. Right. So Andrew, give us some background on Dr. Franz de Okay, so Dr. Dwal is another person for whom we don't need to spend too much time with an introduction. He is the C.H. Candler Professor of Primate Behavior at Emory University in the Department of Psychology, and he's also the director of the Living Links at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. And many of you may know that in 2007, he was also featured by Time as one of the world's 100 most influential people. Now, within primatological circles, he's probably best known for his work in the development of the field of primate prosociality, uh, which extends far beyond primates into other mammals as well, and strongly focusing within the area of empathy. 
Now, he's also a very good spokesperson for science, a good bridge between scientists and the public, and he's written many popular books. Back in the earlier days, some of the most influential being Chimpanzee Politics and uh, Peacemaking Among Primates. But he's also written extensively about the development of Japanese primatology. Right, and that's especially interesting for us because he actually had a fellowship at Kyoto University for three months. Um, and also, he's just had a long history of interaction with Japanese primatologists. So he has an interesting view on, on how Japanese primatology relates to the rest of the field, and he's written about it a lot. Okay, so here he is, talking about Japanese primatology. I've always felt that uh, the Japanese primatology was underestimated in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt that that way since I was a student, basically, because, of course, the naming of individuals started with Imanishi, and the following of lineages and matrilines started with him. The word culture in primatology started with Imanishi. And so I always felt that uh, Japanese primatology was underrepresented. Hmm. And, and maybe I felt some kinship because I'm, I'm not a native English speaker. And, and, and even though my language is much closer to English than, let's say, the Japanese language, I, I can see how native English speakers sort of dominate the world because everyone needs to talk their language. And it's easy to dominate the world if, if others are sort of struggling to keep up with your language. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt some sympathy for the Japanese position in that regard. Mm. And then later, of course, I, I started visiting Japan and knowing Japanese. And one time I stayed even three months in Kyoto. And so, and after that, I wrote my book, um, The Ape and the Sushi Master, which, which was on that topic, basically, of how the culture topic had come about and how influential the Japanese had been in that. Hmm. So I forget the uh, the researcher who made the comments, but there was quite a scathing paper about Imanishi's work that came out, I don't know, was it the 70s or 80s, um, based on the ideas that he presented in his view of nature, was the Japanese view of nature. Oh, yeah, forgetting who, who that was. That was an Englishman who visited right. here. That's right. Halstead, wasn't that the Maybe. name? And yeah, he had a very negative paper on Imanishi. He had even visited Imanishi and talked with him uh, but after that, he uh, and he had given him a bottle of whiskey, I believe. But after that, he uh, was still extremely negative on Imanishi, that he was a fool, and and uh, yeah, uh, and and of course later in the early nineties, there was a paper by uh, Ben Galef on the Koshima experiment, uh, which was also extremely negative and how that was completely misrepresented, even though he never made the effort to talk with people who had first-hand knowledge and never made the effort to go to Koshima to see how mm. the situation looked uh, and made some outrageous claims about what had been reported. For example, uh, he, he, he claimed that obviously Miss Mito, who, who had been handing out potatoes there, had been selectively rewarding young monkeys who would wash the potatoes and that's how she got the behavior introduced in the group. And, and when I talked with Miss Mito, because I did, with an interpreter, I, uh, she doesn't speak English. When I talked with her, she sort of laughed at that idea. She said, you first need to feed the adult males, because you cannot feed any juveniles before you have fed the adult males. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, they will beat up the juveniles otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she thought it was a silly idea to think that you could start with the juveniles. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how poorly Galef's paper was researched. But he was so opposed to the idea of um, culture in animals. And for the rest of his life, I believe he has remained opposed to that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. And then there's also another um, thing that comes to my mind, which is, I think it was um, 
when in chimp politics you talk about um, Arnim Zhu and Sugiyama Sensei could recognize very quickly uh-huh. the identities of the chimpanzees. Yeah. So that seems like another connection to a Japanese researcher coming. Um, in yeah, Sugiyama so visited me. Um, he, he visited Jan van Hoof, my professor, mm-hmm. and uh, he visited me in Arnhem when I was still uh, a student with long hair and everything. It was, <laughs> was quite different from now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was interesting to see that because the chimps, they, uh, they don't like strangers mm-hmm. and they throw stuff at them. And, and so they were a bit hostile to, m- to me bringing a new person there. But in, in, a, in addition, I remember that Sugiyama learned all the chimps in one day. Mm. Mm. And I found it at the time remarkable. Uh, but of course, uh, since then, field, I've noticed that field workers are actually very good at this. Right. It's maybe because field workers, they, they, they don't always get to see the whole animal. Uh, and so they're very used to picking up on small details mm. more than other people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, from from personal experience, I find uh, pre-established marking systems to be much less effective than just spending a little bit of time and picking up on those uh, exactly yeah. those sometimes intangible things. So, so another story on Japanese primatology is that that Imanishi in nineteen sixty eight he toured the to U.S. with Itani, I believe, and to explain about his work to to American researchers and and people laughed at him. People laughed at the idea that you. He claimed that he could recognize a hundred monkeys. Well, that was totally impossible. <laughs> uh, everyone knew that that was impossible, and so he must have been making up stories. These were probably the people who laughed at him uh, were probably rat researchers or pigeon researchers, uh, because Carpenter, Ray Carpenter, the pioneer uh, primatologist in the U.S., he he believed the whole story. He had tried it himself, obviously, and he became a big fan of Imanishi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. interesting. So going back to Arnhem, so that was the beginning of your career, and you noticed obviously a lot of interesting. You found a lot of interesting behavior in chimpanzees at the Arnhem Zoo, and I'm wondering what's your kind of general view of chimps, the evolution of that since then. Uh-huh. Has it changed much, or the general themes that you that you noticed? The themes have changed because when I started in Arnhem, the goal was to study aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, the first year I was there, there was almost no aggressive behavior, so I started to do other things, like paying attention to their personalities and looking at the details of mother-infant interactions and stuff like that. So I got very used to chimpanzees in that one year, which was very good, because when the males then started to politic and, and, and to have power struggles, I was very well prepared, because I knew all the individuals very well, and I knew all their behavior very well. And uh, I, I, I kept a very detailed diary, in addition to all the, the data that I collected, and, and the diary then became the basis for chimpanzee politics. And uh, the theme initially was aggressive behavior, but very soon I got interested in the reconciliations that hap- happened after aggressive behavior. And uh, that became sort of my main theme, because if I presented to people on reconciliation behavior in chimpanzees, there was always there was this element of surprise, like like no one had expected anything like it. Uh, at that time, uh, all animal behavior was explained in terms of competition, dominance, and competition, uh, and everyone was talking about how, how you become the most successful baboon, so to speak. Um, but no one was talking about how how do you keep a group together. And and when I presented reconciliation uh, behavior. 
uh, it was not that people were theoretically interested in because they, they had no theories that related to it. They didn't know what to do with the data. And I thought that was very intriguing. And, and so when I went to the United States in 81, I decided that was going to be my theme, conflict resolution. In, instead of focusing on aggression, I was going to focus on conflict resolution. And uh, I did that initially with macaques. And then I did a study on bonobos at the San Diego Zoo. And then I did a food sharing study on chimpanzees at Yerkes. All of that I did in the first 10 years when I was still in Wisconsin. And uh, then, uh, then I started to look for a position where I could be a bit closer to chimpanzees because they had no chimps in, in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that remained the theme of my career. It's more, more focusing instead of conflict and competition and who wins and who loses, more focusing on integ social integration, empathy, cooperation, reciprocity, that kind of issues. So you kind of have these two lines of research. One is kind of the observation of the chimpanzees as they fight and reconcile. And then mm -hmm. the other kind of more recent um, has been experiments. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what was the impetus for you to start thinking about doing experiments? Yeah, so when I, Arnhem was entirely observational. We didn't, I don't think we even tried an experiment at the time. And then, uh, oh yeah, except for the stuffed lion that we did one time. <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> well, the chimps threw a lot of stuff at the lion. <laughs> and then they lost interest in the stuffed lion. Okay. Uh, so uh, the, apart from that, then I moved to Wisconsin and I was still largely observational. I worked on macaques and also the bonobo study was largely like that. And then I got interested in uh, manipulating things. And my first manipulation was probably the food sharing study at Yerkes that I did with chimpanzees. And I also did one with monkeys where I housed uh, different species of macaque, rhesus and stumptail monkeys together to see if how they would influence each other's behavior. I did that in Wisconsin. So when I moved from Wisconsin to Yerkes, which is in 91, I decided I wanted to set up a lab to do experiments. And so I took my capuchin monkeys, which I had already with me, and I modeled my lab on Hans Kummer's lab. Hans Kummer had a lab in Switzerland with long-tailed macaques, which are now all of a sudden the rage, you know, mm -hmm. but <laughs> were not so popular at the time. And Hans had decided that you should not keep monkeys in sort of single cages and then take them out and do a test with them. You need to, to house these monkeys socially in a group. And then you can ask them social questions like, do you recognize who, which female is related to which offspring and so on? And so uh, that seemed to make a lot of sense for me. And also since I'm very much opposed to single, single housed animals. Uh, so so I, I insisted at Yerkes that I would get group housing for the monkeys, indoor, outdoor group housing for these capuchin monkeys uh, and, and set up a lab in which I could run experiments. And so the capuchin colony became the first place where I started to do experiments. Then with chimps, also at Yerkes, I did in the beginning mostly observational stuff. But since the capuchin studies were going so well and were so interesting, almost all my students, they wanted them to work with, with um, chimpanzees and, and do similar sort of experiments. And so we moved to more experimental things with chimps also. And as you know, working here with chimps, it's not so easy. Mm -hmm. they, they're sometimes um, not cooperative and 
Uh, sometimes they mess up and sometimes they do it on purpose. And so, so chimps are difficult animals to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's a real challenge, but we started doing that. So just to make an extension from that, because of the difficulties you have working with, for example, chimpanzees, you've often made the point that perhaps those difficulties actually affect the interpretation of studies and the results that are found yeah. in chimpanzee yeah. studies that may be not necessarily reflective of, of reality. You have to be very careful with negative results. And I think people have been a bit overly eager to interpret negative results. So, so then they, they test, let's say, children the same way that they test chimpanzees. The children do well on the task, the chimpanzees do poorly. Now, there's a, there's a host of things that can explain that. Mm-hmm. For example, if, if the test is administered by a human, it could be that the children relate better to a human than chimpanzees. And that's probably an explanation for a lot of the differences that have been found. But it's also that chimps react differently to things. They focus on, well, there's some research now, the eye tracking research that you do here, that show they look differently at certain situations. Mm-hmm. And so negative results are very hard to interpret and, and actually, the, the interpretation of last resort should be that there's a, a cognitive difference. And, and, and first, you need to rule out a whole bunch of methodological issues. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've never worked much with negative results. If we get negative results, which of course happens, we try to figure out or, or we drop the whole case because I don't know what to do with negative results. And, and some people have been overly eager to interpret them. So with chimps, yes, there's a lot of methodological issues. And so, for example, the the pro-social test that we did, where you have two chimpanzees who can, one chimpanzee can select tokens of a different color. One color feeds himself and a partner, and the other color only feeds himself. Um, They prefer, they start to prefer what we call the pro-social token for exchange, so that they start to give some food to their partner. Uh, that, that is actually an experiment that has been tried before uh, with different conditions, with a sort of apparatus where they had, had to pull levers, and the chimps never performed well on that. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion at the time was that chimpanzees don't have pro-social tendencies. And, and that's such an overreach of conclusion, in my opinion. What they should have said is, we have tried this, and it didn't give any result. It only gave random results. And here are the possible explanations for that, one of which could be a side bias. You all know if you work with chips on touchscreens that they have side biases. They always pull right or they pull left, which is such an obvious explanation for a lot of these results. Mm-hmm. So, so, the, so you need to rule all of that out before you get to these big conclusions of a cognitive difference. Yeah, and so we've had an issue come up with our guests before in the primate cast where a lot of people think that there's a trend to say in titles of papers like chimpanzees do this or chimpanzees do that, whereas what they're really talking about is a specific group of chimpanzees uh-huh. in a specific context with a specific type of apparatus. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. We should be careful about making these broad generalizations and, and kind of lay out the situation in more detail. Well, that's another issue is that, that some chimps, also in captivity, some chimps may be different from others. And so dependent on how they were trained or what their background is. Uh, because um, there are chimps who are very human-oriented and there are chimps who what we call are very chimpy, is that they are more focused on each other. Mm-hmm. So the ones who are very human-oriented, who pay attention to what you do and, and want to please you maybe or want to compete with you or whatever the human orientation is, those chimps are going to respond differently in these mm-hmm. experiments. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I believe that there's also the possibility that 
some chimps, like maybe the chimps at Yerkes are different from the chimps at Leipzig and are different from the chimps at Kyoto. Right. It's possible. Right. So it might be nice to have some kind of more uh, broad studies that can look at the same task in different locations. Yeah, might yeah, be interesting. Yeah. I want to ask you about uh, other species. So you have gotten into elephant research, uh-huh. and I'm wondering, like, what was the what was the reason for getting into that, and, and how has that gone for you? Well, I'm very interested in comparative approaches, mm-hmm. a, a bit like what Joseph Call was talking about in his talk. And I think the, I, the comparative approach is so powerful in etology. I think, and of course, usually we use it within a genus or within a group. Like, like macaque genus is, for example, ideal for this because you have 20 species and so the comparisons within the macaque genus are really wonderful to, and very, very uh, illuminating, I think. So I've always been in this comparative approach and, and I've never worked exclusively with chimps. I've also worked with bonobos, with capuchin monkeys, with macaques, very extensively with macaques. Uh, even though they're so totally different from from the the apes, mm-hmm. and so when I got a student to Josh Plotnik who said that he he loved to work with elephants, I thought, well, that's great. Uh, the the mirror test still needs to be done on elephants uh, <laughs> because it had been done and and there was a negative result, but I think there was easily explained that negative result, and so. Um, since I was interested at the time at empathy in empathy, and I believe that there's a connection between mirror self-recognition and perspective taking, uh, I, I wanted to know what elephants would do because elephants have this reputation of being highly altruistic and empathic and so on. And so that's how we ended up doing a, a simple experiment with mirrors at the Bronx Zoo. And since then, Josh has taken that whole operation to Thailand and is doing a lot of interesting things, mm-hmm. sort of replicating many of the studies on apes now trying to replicate them on, on elephants. Right, it's really exciting research. Yeah, and the elephant is so understudied. Everyone, of course, believes that they are very smart. There's, there's no doubt uh, that they are very smart, but no one has really documented that in detail. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. So you've been able to provide, probably over the last number of years, some fairly compelling evidence for this idea of, and pro, within prosociality tendencies towards empathy and this kind of thing. Do you think you've silenced the critics? How much? What's going to take? It is true that uh, criticism has subsided a lot. So initially, when I would say that even chimpanzees, that chimpanzees have empathy, uh, people, people were very sort of uh, objecting to that kind of idea. And I think it is because they had a very high opinion about empathy. Uh, I believe that Povinelli even runs, once wrote a paper that chimpanzees have no empathy. What he meant is they have no theory of mind. And even that, of course, is in, under debate. Um, but for me, empathy is not theory of mind. That, that's that's maybe an outgrowth of it, and it is related to it. But um, in in psychology, there's a lot of resistance to it. Whereas if you go to the average person in the street and you say, uh, does your dog have empathy? You always get an affirmative answer because the dog responds to emotions. So if you're sad, the dog will try to console you. And actually, recently, an experiment was published on that particular issue. Uh, and if you're happy, the dog will be happy and try to play with you. And, and and so dogs respond to our emotions, and we recognize that as related to empathy, because that's also in young children how, how we see empathy. And so that kind of resistance has now subsided to a large degree, I think, because rodents have now empathy, according to some people, and birds have it, according to some people, and... And so it's not limited. I'm not just talking about chimpanzees anymore. It's it's a wide range of animals, and certainly mammals and birds, in which we recognize that they're sensitive to the emotions of others. 
And we're not necessarily claiming perspective taking or theory of mind, even though I think in some species like elephants and apes, that, that becomes a, a big issue and a big possibility. So where do you take it from here then? Well, we keep doing experiments on this and, and we keep doing experiments on cooperation. Uh, I think the, the empathy literature on animals will keep growing. Uh, the, the word is not really a taboo anymore, I have the impression. And, and so it will get bigger and, and then people will, and that happens with every term that we use. If you use the term theory of mind, initially it's a black and white discussion. Do, does this animal have theory of mind? Yes or no. And now we are at the point where the whole concept has sort of fallen apart in little pieces. And we say, yes, the scrub jays, they may have this part of it, but not that part. Or the elephants may have this part or not that part. And and, and humans may have all of the parts, but I'm not even sure that humans have all of the parts. But um, <laughs> uh, certainly not, not in early development. Mm -hmm. and, and so now the concept has more or less fallen apart. And, and, and the same thing will happen with empathy. I look at empathy as a sort of umbrella term for how one organism understands another or, or relates to the situation and the feelings of another at least. Uh, but I'm sure 10 years from now we will have divided it up in little pieces and, and, and a dog will have only some of these pieces. Mm. That's really interesting. Mm. Well, Dr. Dwell, thanks very much for joining Thank us you so in the Cast. You're welcome. Mm. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.